Fred? Didn't you hear me when I said if you see a ghost girl, do not go to the prom with her? Welcome to another episode of the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo, the podcast where we delve into the mystery of Scooby-Doo media, getting clues from people who helped bring our favorite mystery-solving dog to life on various platforms, and maybe eating some Scooby snacks along the way. I'm your host, Alexa Lawler. We're just solving mysteries. All the kids are doing it. No, they're not. What have you kids done now? You can call me Mr. D. Welcome to the fourth and last episode in this month's Mystery Incorporated theme. It's a little hard to believe that we're already near the end of September. On this episode, we have Victor Cook, who was supervising director on season one and producer on season two of Mystery Incorporated. Victor was also the producer and director on Scooby-Doo Stage Fright and the special episodes released on the 13 Spooky Tales DVD releases. So we go into those topics in the interview as well. Good, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. I'm glad to be here. I hope everybody out there is staying safe and healthy. Definitely. Um, so I like to start off with a quick three-question trivia game, if you're game. Okay. So question one, uh, in Scooby-Doo Spooky Games, in what city are the World Invitational Games taking place? Brazil? I hope. <laughs> It's been a while since I worked on the show, but I think it was Brazil. It's actually London. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm mixing up my special. <laughs> the soccer ones in Brazil. Okay. And question two, what is the name of the TV talent competition in Scooby-Doo Stage Fright? Oh my gosh. I should have prepared for this i i can't remember it was sort of like an american idol-esque thing but i can't remember the name talent star talent star thank you you get, <laughs> you get the prize oh god i feel awful and last question in the mystery incorporated episode where walks aphrodite what does aphrodite use to hypnotize the town to act like they're in love oh some sort of, uh, I don't remember. Some flower? Was it a flower? It was, yeah. Flowers, the special formula on the flowers. Oh, thank you. You know, <laughs> I have to apologize. It's like, you know, it, it's so intense when you're working on these shows. And, uh, and then you go on to another show and then a decade goes by, you know. Um, I was uh, invited to the 20th year anniversary of Disney's Gargoyles panel in Colorado. And I was just a storyboard artist on the show, uh, but they had actors and the producers and the writers and they're going down the line asking people questions. And they got to me and, and they said, uh, you know, what's your best memory of storyboarding on the show? And all I, all I could think of was like, oh my God, every episode was Gargoyles flying and fighting. I couldn't, I couldn't remember anything specific. So sorry. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, that's totally understandable. And so to start off the general questions, uh, what's your relationship to Scooby-Doo? Did you grow up watching? Yes, I w- I'm old enough to have seen uh, the original show when it first came on. Uh, I was probably like, uh, I was born in the 60s. So I was a kid of the 60s. And so I think the show, didn't it premiere in 69 or 70? 69, yeah. Yeah, so I, I would have been uh, uh, in third grade when that show came out. Um, so yeah, I was a huge Hanna-Barbera Saturday morning cartoon fan back in those days. Uh, Johnny Quest, the Herculoids, and um, Scooby-Doo. And do you have a favorite personal related memory uh, involving Scooby-Doo at all? Uh, not from watching the show, because that's like, it, I loved like the pantheon of all the Hanna-Barbera shows. You know, back in those days, I just loved, I gobbled up. Hanna-Barbera cartoons, and Marvel and DC comics, and uh, also uh, uh, newspaper comic strips, you know, like uh, Charles Schultz's uh, Peanuts. So, um, and uh, and outside of those things, uh, there was a syndicated show called Speed Racer that I was a fan of. So I was just sort of like the whole pile of that stuff I was a huge fan of. Uh, my personal memories of uh, Scooby, I think, have more to do when I was working on the show. And uh, how did you come to work in animation? How did I get into animation in the first place? I actually did not set out to to have a career in animation. I grew up uh, with the idea that I was going to be a cartoonist. I always thought I'd be a cartoonist, but uh, I defined that. And in my, my uh, imagination and goal was that meant I would either draw comic strips uh, political cartoons, comic books, or even like greeting cards. I thought I'd be like a print cartoonist because uh, I really admired uh, all those artists. And um, and when I was a kid, my parents didn't really take us to the movies that much. So I didn't really get to go see the latest uh, Disney movie releases. So, you know, my cartoons, my the animation I saw was on TV, like I had mentioned before. Um, and I think one of the reasons why I back then didn't have an interest in pursuing animation as I had read this, um, this a biography or a story about Jack Kirby's uh, career. And there was this one little thing I read where one of his first jobs was he was an in-betweener at the Fleischer studios, which used to do the old Superman cartoons and the Betty Boop cartoons and the old Popeye cartoons. And, uh, but he said he hated it. He said it was like a factory job. Like, like some guy drew, this hand on the left, another guy drew the hand on the right, and his job was to draw the hand in the middle, you know, to create that motion of the hand moving. And he, so I read that and I'm like, God, that doesn't actually sound that fun. And I never sort of like looked into all the other aspects of animation. So growing up, I thought I'd be a print cartoonist. When I was in college, I was in a life drawing class and, uh, you know, we're all sitting around the model drawing this figure but I would always like add horns to its head or claws to its hands or bat wings or something I'd always do something that wasn't there on the model and uh and luckily my art teacher got a kick out of that and um she had said to me that one of her former students was an animator at Hanna-Barbera and I should look him up and I should mention by the way that I was at a junior college in central California which is about 
which is like six hours north of uh, LA, just a small little sort of almost farm town that uh, that had an Air Force base nearby. My dad was in the Air Force. And, uh, but because I had read that, that uh, biography, think of Jack Kirby, I, I, I politely took the name of that artist and his number and wrote it down on my book. And I just sort of never intended to call the guy. And this is the, this is like 1980 or something like that. So there's no internet or anything like that. So I go to Southern California, I transfer schools and I'm submitting comic strips to the syndicates. You got to do a month's worth of your comic strips. I did a few of them. And, uh, and I was working at a local paper as a graphic artist and doing political cartoons once a week. And, and so after a few years of that and not being syndicated yet, I did think in the back of my mind, maybe I should look that guy up. And I cold called him and uh, he recommended I take an animation class at the union, the animation guild, uh, because uh, it's taught by professionals and they teach you exactly how to create your sample to, to get a job. And I did it. I never ever met this person, by the way, face to face. It's just so strange. You know, 30 years later, I wish I could look him up and find him uh, because it was great advice. I took that class. Six months later, I applied to Filmation Studios. Uh, uh, they, they did She-Ra and He-Man, and I got hired to do Brave Star. It was like one of their last shows as an in-betweener and assistant animator. And while there is when I discovered storyboards, you know, they gave me a tour of the studio and I saw the storyboard department and, you know, it was like three panels on a page and it looked and reminded me of a comic strip, which is what I, one of the things I originally wanted to do. So I thought, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to try to be a storyboard artist. So I took classes at the union at night while I worked during the day to build up some samples and learn how to storyboard. And then, uh, Two years after I had gotten that job at Filmation, they actually then went out of business after like Brave Star completely flopped and it went out of business. But by then I had storyboard samples and got hired on Alf and Alf Tells. The director of that show was a guy named Kevin Altieri, who later would be one of the four directors on Batman, the animated series. He gave me an opportunity to board on Alf and Alf Tells and the experience I got on that show gave me also samples that got me hired at Walt Disney TV animation uh, a couple years later on Tailspin and Darkwing Duck. And uh, I spent 16 years at Disney uh, storyboarding on those shows, Gargoyles, Aladdin, and then got a chance to be a director on 101 Dalmatians and various shows, Buzz Lightyear, Star Command, Lilo and Stitch, uh, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, those kind of shows. And, um, and then I left for a decade and and I did sort of four things in that decade. One was uh, I got to co-develop for TV the spectacular Spider-Man, and also uh, show run it with uh, my partner Greg Wiseman. And then after that, went on to Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated. And then after that, uh, went to Hasbro and sort of reimagined uh, with these writers, Kevin Burke and Doc Wyatt. We both we reimagined and executive produced Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters, and then when as that was ending, I was approached by Disney Junior to uh, work with the uh, the creator, this creator named Travis Braun, on a new show called Tots, which is what I'm doing now. So, I hope that wasn't too uh, long of a story. <laughs> no, that's perfect. 
And how do you cross over from being a storyboard artist into directing? Wow. There's not really any one way that I can think of. All, all, all I could say is if you are interested in being a TV animation director, you're most likely going to get there by being a storyboard artist first. I mean, it has happened that people who are designers or have had other responsibilities uh, in animation on the show have crossed over to be episode directors, but it's more likely you're going to be a storyboard artist first and do that and make that transition. But simply being a storyboard artist doesn't mean you're going to be a director because um, there's other sort of factors and skills uh, uh, that you find that are needed to be a director. You know, when you're a storyboard artist, you have your storyboard and you're on it for six weeks and you're focused only on what you have to do. And you're not assigned anything else until you're done with that storyboard. When you're a director, you're multitasking. You may be launching a storyboard artist on episode one uh, while working on your animatic of uh, episode two while editing episode three. It's kind of all kind of happening at the same time. You got to keep track of it. So, um, uh, so I guess while you're, I guess when you're storyboarding, they one want to make sure you are creatively doing a great job uh, as a filmmaker and you're funny or dynamic or whatever that show needs, you're able to do that. And then two, are you reliable? Are you hitting the deadlines? Are you able to do it in the time allotted? And then uh, the third thing is like the, the quality of, you know, I don't know how they decide this from storyboarding, but like, do you, are you going to be able to multitask? And sometimes that they just have to find out by throwing the board guy into the directing pool to see if they can do it. So for me, how I did it was, and everybody does it a different way, but when I got in at Disney on Tailspin, the showrunner had a pep talk uh, at the start of the season where he said uh, how everybody should learn what everybody else does, that the production assistant should learn what the background painter does and that the character designer should learn what the storyboard artist does and that the prop designer should learn what the writers does and the writer should learn what the production person does, you know, that kind of thing. And I was brand new and I took it all to heart. I, I didn't realize later that a lot of the crew were just sort of like rolling their eyes and wanting to get back to work, but I took it to heart and I go, okay, I'm going to learn what a writer does. And I signed up for a UCLA extension class in animation script writing without any intention or goal of wanting to be a professional writer. I was just really doing to learn about another part of the process. But when you're taking the class, you know, part of the assignment is you do have to generate springboards and premises and scripts, and uh, and they want you to do it uh, based on existing shows. Um, and so I, I, I chose Darkwing Duck. I knew that was next on, coming up uh, at Disney, so I said so I'll just do some. I'll make this my class assignment. And uh, but then meanwhile, while I'm at work, I am kind of hearing that uh, Darkwing is part of the Disney Afternoon. They just bought ABC. They had all these episodes they had to make. And I heard some writers and story editors commiserating in the hallway about how they really need to find more stories or more writers because of the big order of shows. So I went and mentioned to one of the story editors, hey, I've got some springboards and some story ideas because I had them from the class. And I pitched them uh, and they, they picked one. 
And then they said, okay, you get to freelance one. And I was a storyboard artist on the show at the time. They go, you get to freelance this script. And um, uh, and then months and months later, I it was no guarantee I'd get the storyboard on my own script, but it worked out that I got the storyboard on my own script. And, uh, and then after that was all done, the creator of the show, the, the showrunner and creator of the show, Ted Stones, came knocking on my door. And he uh was like impressed he was i don't think he was necessarily impressed like wow this guy wrote a great script i think he was more impressed that i had the gumption to try to write a script and that i got and i sold it and uh and he said you know we love you as a storyboard artist and you writing the script also tells me you understand story uh in that way too and that those are the qualities i'm looking for and directors here and that was the beginning of the company thinking of me uh as a director and that's how i became a director and in your opinion to be an animation director or any other role really do you need to have that artistic ability that you would have as a storyboard artist or a designer uh you know th this is uh this has been a little bit of a debate recently on other projects um uh, I think you do, you know, and, um, you know, some of the shows like up in Canada, for instance, uh, there was a, for the, like, I'd say a good generation, 20, 30 years, uh, they had their own industry, but they've also done a lot of work for hire for American companies, usually just doing the, um, uh, animation portion of it and then slowly maybe, okay, now we're going to do the design portion of it. And, so, uh, and it's a lot of it's CG. So you have a lot of people who are great CG animators who uh, might feel like they're ready to be like episode directors. And some people could make an argument that uh, they have the skills needed to do it because that last part of the pipeline, they can make all these adjustments um, in the CG, in the, in the layout process. I'm more of the old school thought of, Okay, if, if you're going to direct, you do need to be able to storyboard. I mean, you do be, need to be able to put your ideas on paper. You can't really act everything out. If you're talking about a squash and stretch animal doing crazy Tex Avery antics, no human being can stand in, another, in front of another person. And you can't physically act that, right? You need to draw what you mean sometimes. Um, and TV moves so fast, like if you want a dynamic angle, you could hand write the note on a panel. Hey, this needs to be more dynamic. And hopefully your board artist, when he, when he interprets that and does what he thinks is a dynamic angle, you're going to be happy with it. But if you're not, you know, you're going to eventually going to have to like loosely thumbnail in that dynamic angle. So I, I you know, the directors I had could storyboard and the directors I hire can storyboard. And I, I just believe the best TV directors, uh, come from storyboarding, but there are exceptions that, that they can come from other areas. So I could be proven wrong sometimes on that, but my preference is they are storyboard artists first. And for those who maybe don't know, can you describe what the role of a director is? Yeah, the director's job is to uh, basically visually tell the story. You know, a writer wrote the script, right? 
but the director is like when you when you watch any movie or TV, you see a series of close-ups or far shots and and the and camera angles and does the character walk from here to there and how do they gesture all those kind of things the director has uh is supposed to steer the ship on that and have the final say on that so especially the animation with the acting it's like you know uh, how they physically act or move or stand that's going to be the the director's job the camera angles um the places where the script isn't as descriptive, like if it's an action sequence, a chase sequence, or a gag sequence, there'll be something written there to kind of get that started. Or maybe they'll even, it will be super descriptive, but a director may feel there's a different or better or more exciting or fun way to do it. And they have to dream that up or like, or song sequences, for instance, like there's some loose idea of what it's going to be, but until you get in there and just start listening to the song and making up what you're going to see. Um, that's the director's job. And conversely, what is the role of a producer? Well, it really depends on where they came up from. So, um, so a lot of shows I'm on, there's usually at least three people that have a producer title. One person who has that is really all about the schedules and the budgets and making sure all that's going to flow. Okay. But if it's someone like me, then one of the producers is somebody who's come up from a, uh, a directing and, and uh, background of, of sort of the nuts and bolts of how to put the show together. And the other producer is usually came up from being a writer and together their job is to sort of show run uh, the show. Uh, so I just described what a director does. A producer would usually then, the director's job usually goes until the storyboard ships to animation. And, and, and I'd say in a lot of cases, his job may finish at that point. And then it's the, uh, the producer with the, the, the director background that would take it over from then in terms of retakes uh, communicating to the animators, and then also editing, sound effects, music. Uh, the, all the producers together weigh in when we're casting the show, when we're choosing the actors, and all the producers together are also uh, weighing in on what kind of music style do we want, what composer we're going to hire, and also spotting each and every episode uh, with the composer. Um, and then the producers then uh, are at the final mix, uh, giving notes and about adjusting sound level, sound effects, music, all that stuff. And they kind of sign off on the show, you know. And I should go back in time before the director does anything. The producers are developing the show. They're developing it from who the characters are, what the storylines are going to be. And then on my side of it, uh, uh, the art of it, like what's it going to look like? What, what is the filmmaking style of the show? And what is the difference when you're working on a project in maybe both roles as opposed to working in just one or the other? Well, th there's a lot of crossover. I would say uh, on Scooby and Hasbro, it really was almost uh, an intertwined role, you know, because I was a supervising director and uh, a producer on those shows that uh, my hands were really in the weeds of all of it, like really getting into there, almost like an episode director sometimes and redrawing and re-staging and sort of thumbnailing sequences and things like that. 
uh, on my current show, we have a supervising director and he really does all that. So I can take a step back and sort of take a broader view and kind of just like step in sometimes uh, on what he does. But because he's so good at covering all that, it really gives me breathing room to kind of see the whole thing and make sure everything is is, is uh, happening when it needs to happen and working how it needs to work. And I can focus on speaking to the animators and, and that. So that's the difference. If you're doing both, like if you're being a supervising director and you have this producer title, you're really, uh, you're up to your uh, eyeballs at work. Uh, if you are properly crewed and, and uh, you're an executive producer, and like say on the writing side, you're an executive producer, but have a story editor under you, that gives you more breathing room to oversee the whole show. So, so the same thing on the visual side, if you have a supervising director under you, it, it lets you kind of have a step back and have a broader view of the show. And are there any challenges to having both roles? Like does the project uh, either suffer or benefit from having uh, one person in both roles? I think the main difference is time. Uh, you know, uh, when you're doing both roles, you are potentially going to be working evenings and weekends. And, uh, uh, and, I, and I think you do run the risk of a, a, a burnout if the show isn't budgeted to, uh, to, to have those extra roles. So, um, you know, I, I, I feel like we are so blessedly budgeted for the show I'm working on now. Uh, it, it's great. And moving more towards Scooby, how did you come to work on Mystery Incorporated? So I, before that show, I was on The Spectacular Spider-Man and my line producer, Wade Wazinski, uh, rolled off the show before me. And he landed at Warner Brothers on Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated as its line producer. And he just contacted me and said, hey, they're looking for a couple of directors on the show. And he introduced me to the supervising director, I'm sorry, the supervising producer, uh, Tony Cervoni. And uh, we uh, hit it off and he decided to bring me aboard. You know, I met him and Mitch Watson and they brought me aboard as a director and, um, Tony was also simultaneously producing another show and uh, about, um, I'd say maybe four weeks into the job, he asked me if I would want to step up and be the supervising director on Scooby. And I said, of course. And then uh, after the, that season, they asked me to produce uh, the second season. And what was it like to come into a darker overarching story as your first experience working on Scooby? Well, I loved it. Like, you know, we mentioned before, I remember the original show. Uh, but in those days, as I said, I was a huge fan of uh, the Hanna-Barbera action shows like Johnny Quest, Herculoids, uh, and those kind of shows. And um, so this new, darker approach to me kind of, you know, it made it more dramatic. It made it more grounded for me, uh, which kind of uh, was more my sensibility. Um, and especially after coming off the spectacular Spider-Man, it just seemed like a perfect fit to, to go into a Scooby like this that had a, uh, a big storyline that continued over uh, two seasons and uh, there was backstory to the character and lore 
and the characters' personalities were flushed out. It just seemed like it fit me more to do this type of a Scooby. So I was, I felt very fortunate that it all worked out that way. And can you explain what maybe the day-to-day experience was like working on Mystery Incorporated? Oh my gosh. Well, let me try to remember. I couldn't remember those specific questions you asked me at the top, but I do remember it day-to-day being a super pleasant experience. It was a, it was also an example of a show that was very well thought out schedule-wise. So, you know, we were able to sort of handle the demands of the art direction and the staging because of uh, just how it was scheduled out. It wasn't all on top of each other, what we had to do. So that, was, so that I think also made it fun to do. Uh, it, what I remember, this is not like a day-to-day thing, but like what I remember when I first came on the show was how eclectic the crew seemed to me, especially when you would tell people you're on Scooby-Doo, everybody thought, you know, prior to Mr. Incorporated, Every Scooby-Doo was, um, people had an idea of that kind of, that, that original show, but just updated, right? And, uh, and I think every, most people in our business thought a certain, uh, you know, we have people who sort of specialize in different genres in this business, like the funny cartoon guy or the primetime cartoon guy or the action show guy. And there's a lot of people who pride themselves and they could sort of step in and do any of those roles. But I think Scooby was in the, camp of uh up until that point of this is a only comedy people work on the show so i get on the show and i'm watching this crew get put together uh and uh so besides me who just came off the spectacular spider-man they hired kurt gata who was like one of the top dc uh dc universe superhero directors at warner brothers you know batman beyond all those shows he was on the show directing uh, and then they brought in this art director, uh, Rob Crawl, who um, came off Samurai Jack. Oh, excuse me, I misspoke. Uh, I meant to say Dan Crawl uh, was our art director. Rob Crawl was our fantastic composer. And it was just De- Derek Wyatt, who also designed uh, Transformers. So it was like these uh, kind of eclectic mix of sort of stylized action shows uh comedy shows all on the show and uh it it, it all made sense because you know besides story-wise it being a more serious tone with an overarching story uh filmmaking wise we were going to do it like um mini movies you know if you think back to the original show um and i think mostly because of the limitations of animation at the time original show was very left to right and kind of flat. It wasn't that dimensional, you know, um, but we were going to have upshots, downshots, like any angle you'd see in any horror movie or any action movie. And also we were, the show was going to still have comedy and be funny, but more in the sense of like, you know, I guess like Ghostbusters, you know, where it's kind of rooted in, it's a, the scary moments are really scary. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, anyway, I, I, I may have gone off track a little bit, but I just remember it was an eclectic crew that came together to really make this very different sort of a Scooby. With people coming from all different backgrounds, how did that uh, bump up the quality of the show? It worked out surprisingly well because like Kurt and I and the storyboard artists, we just like, you know, the, the sensibility was like, okay, 
we're going to stage this as if we're on an action show, right? As if this were a movie. We're not staging this like a comedy left to right show. We're going to do this like a movie. Meanwhile, the background painters are doing these super stylized paintings that aren't necessarily realistic. They're very artistic and stylized. Uh, and with, with the cinematic quality of each, a sequence would have a certain color, like the sequence is green or the sequence is blue or whatever it's going to be. So you, you put those two things together. It was like really something different. You know, it was great. And what was it like to be able to play with those horror aspects with a lot of the, you know, calling to other different horror movies within the show? It was fun. You know, um, uh, it was fun. We were fans. A lot of us were fans of these movies and uh it was a lot of fun to do there was an episode i remember directing i think it was called mecha mutt is that does that ring a bell to you uh yes yeah yeah and so uh so uh mitch watson uh i know was uh riffing off certain horror things but for me when when uh scooby had the battle the mecha mutt I, in my head, was thinking of Alien. I think it was Alien 2 when Ripley got into the that pallet mover thing, was fighting the alien. And so I made Scooby get into that. So, you know, working on the show kind of sometimes would, like, spark you to remember things of other horror movies and kind of try to put them in. Awesome. And moving to the special episode shorts, like Spooky Games, Haunted Holidays, I think there were six of them. Uh, can you speak to how those came to be? Well, I, I got to say, in terms of how it came to me, it was they were already planned and um, and developed. Uh, like, I had no idea of them, I, I should say, until they actually said, Vic, you know, we'd like to see if you want to do these. I mean, I was on Mystery Incorporated and enmeshed in, in Mystery Incorporated. But uh, as we were get going into only post-production on the final season, I was approached and they said, hey, we have this feature-length DVD and sort of uh, this sort of handful of these 30-minute specials uh, and we'd like you to do them. Um, and uh, I took a look at them and I thought, sure, I'd love to do them. But, you know, they sort of had nothing to do with Mystery Incorporated. It was, it was um, outside of our... Uh, show in terms of storylines and in terms of art direction. Um, those shows were developed, I would say, uh, by Alan Burnett, who, uh, before he retired in recent years, uh, was the co-producer of all the Scooby DVDs and specials. And his background, he was a writer. And so he would work with different writers um, on all the various specials. So you know, like I said, by the time it came to me, the scripts were done and my input was more after the scripts were done. Um, but it was just really as simple as they had them and they needed somebody to do them. And they just asked me if I'd like to do them. And I said, sure. And can you speak to the development process from when you came in to when they were realized? Well, like I said, story wise, they were already developed. But when I for me, it was like, OK, what? is this monster going to look like? What are the powers? So in the Christmas one, I really thought it would be really cool if um, 
this snow creature uh, could uh, have sort of morphing abilities. And I started sketching out these different sort of like, almost like, you know, Sandman morphing abilities. And I bounced it off of uh, Alan and he loved it and, and uh, put it in. So, uh, like I said, the stories may work out, but I look at the monsters like, okay, what can we do to elevate, to make it scarier or more monstrous rather than just, you know, a guy in a suit, but, and we would somehow, the script would somehow explain in some pseudoscience way how the snowsuit was able to do it, but it was just like an excuse to have those visuals to make it extra cooler. Um, but, you know, design-wise, it was really uh, just based on the original EY Tokomoto designs from 1969, 1970, just done today. You know, and we would storyboard it like it was today, but design wise, the aesthetic was the, the original show for those specials. And in your mind, were you thinking of them like an extension of the original show or was it more like a mini movie? Well, you know, I, I, my real, uh, how do I say this? I love Scooby Doo Mr. Incorporated. That's my Scooby, right? That's the one I'm on. I was on and had that rich lore. The other Scoobies always seem to be standalone adventures. Even though there'd be a whole series about it, it's like they never talked really about that much about what just happened in the last episode and what they were doing now didn't necessarily connect to future episodes. I'm talking about the original show. And so to me, the the at least at that time, the specials, also, story-wise, didn't seem to connect to each other at all. They were just standalone adventures. It was like, here's Scooby and the gang in this situation or this mystery to solve. Um, so it, it maybe Alan and the writers, uh, it connected for them. But, but uh, for me, they seem like standalone adventures, unlike, uh, unlike how Mr. Incorporated was done. And out of all the specials, did you have a favorite? Hmm. I think I like the Christmas special. And why? Uh, just what I talk about, the snow creature. That was fun to do. Uh, that was a fun, fun one. I liked the one, I can't remember the name, but it was at a hotel on a beach. Do you remember that one? Yeah, the, I think it's called the Beach Beastie. Yeah. So I like like the thing that was kind of fun about that is we had Adam West and I you know when I was a kid I was such a Batman fan so uh, it was just fun to have him <laughs> to be able to work with him it was one of his last few projects um, so that I say those two of of those were uh, fun to do Stage Fright wasn't a thirty minute special it was a feature length uh, DVD and that was also really fun to do and and uh one of the most fun things to do it actually was the main title sequence of it uh because we just sort of went off and did a completely different stylized version of all the characters and um uh i've always loved that main title sequence i kind of hope one day maybe they'd consider making a, a show based off those designs i thought that those designs turned out great they were uh designed by steve silver who was the impossible character designer 
And moving to talk about stage fright a little bit more, uh, what was it like to play with the Fred and Daphne dynamic in that movie too? That was that was fun. That's one of those things that's like built into, I guess, uh, the the lore of Scooby. You know, it does it did it doesn't really it didn't really it wasn't like a continuation necessarily of an arc from any other DVDs to this DVD or after it. It's sort of to me, it, it's like the ongoing Superman Lois Lane kind of thing. That's just part part of the of what Scooby is about is is the their relationship. But it was it was fun to do. It was definitely fun to do. And moving back to talk about the opening title sequence, what was it like to be able to, you know, play with a different style within the the classic kind of style of the movie? Well, that was really fun. You know, like, you know, especially when we were on Scooby-Doo Mr. Incorporated, uh, you know, it is a style, it is a stylized take also. It's, it's more angular. Derek White did a fantastic job of, you look at the Mr. Incorporated designs and yes, you recognize those characters are very reminiscent of the EY Takamoto designs, but when you really, really look at them, uh, there, there's like these ang angles and he just angled them the right way and kind of the proportions and made them even more animatable. You know, I mean, we hardly had any off model issues in animation with this. So, and, and the background style also being non-traditional. So, you know, working on Mr. Incorporated, it's like, God, I just love this idea of how you can reimagine this franchise and these characters in these different art styles. So when you do the specials and the DVDs, you really don't get that opportunity. At least the, at that time, you don't get that opportunity. The, 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 the style is to be the original style, but the main title is the spot where you can play. So yes, it was super, super fun. And like I said earlier, it's like after we were done, I'm like, man, that'd make a great series if they get it that way. So it was very fun. And what was your favorite part about getting to work on a handful of, you know, vastly different Scooby projects? Um, just to see the scope of them, you know, it's like, you know, uh, to, to at a very close proximity of time, I'm working on a Scooby that, oh, these designs are EY Takamoto designs. And then literally uh, within the same week, this new designs and a new and a, and, a, and a more modern sensibility and then also that the main title sequence so it's, it was just fun to get to play uh and see how the the these characters and this premise and this idea of scooby-doo works so well in so many different art styles and did you find any challenges working on scooby at all well it was not actually not really i mean just the usual challenges of uh you know you want to make it great and you have x amount of time to do it and you know you're just racing the clock to 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 make it great uh but i don't think there was like any extraordinary challenges you know the the crew th this was a top tier crew on mr incorporated everybody was like at the top of their game so it just made everybody's job just that much smoother and easier because, you know, you weren't having to help pick somebody else up because everybody was so great. The other directors, the producers, the writers, 
the supervising producers, uh, the, 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 the art crew, the um, actors, even our exec who was on our show. Uh, I shouldn't say even our exec, but the exec on our show. Uh, uh, he was so great and pleasant. They had great ideas too uh, with the notes he gave. And just like all, all around, you know, it's like if you're on a basketball team and you're the only one who can play and everybody else is sort of like has their arm tied behind their back, it's going to be difficult for you. But this was like you're playing where everybody is, uh, you know, they're like uh, Magic Johnson, they're experts, you know. So it made it pretty fun and easy to work on. And do you have a specific episode of Mystery Incorporated or one of the specials or the movie that you're the most proud of? There's quite a few, like uh, the first episode, which was directed by Kurt. I just loved the way that turned out. Um, that was awesome. Uh, I really liked the Dino Mutt episode um, with the Blue Falcon. That was really fun. And uh, I like our two season finales, you know, those, you know, all Fear of the Freak. And, uh, and then our season two finale, those were great. Uh, I love the twists and turns that Fred had to endure in the show of uh, thinking the mayor was his dad then then finding out that he's not and that his real dad is not such a good guy. It's like so many cool things about the show. And what was it like to come to work on a show that you had grown up watching? Fun. I couldn't get wait to get to work every day. It was a blast. And like I said, a lot of it ha also had to do with the crew. Uh, and besides them being such experts and professionals and good at the job, they, they were just like a fun, fun bunch of people to work with, the nicest people you'd want to work with. And why do you think that a cartoon about a mystery-solving dog has held up for over 50 years now? Well, uh, I will repeat something that Tony Cervoni uh, told me, and I think this is the key. Fear food, and flashlights. I think that's the reason for the success of the Scooby-Doo show is uh, you combine those elements in just the right way of drama and comedy and uh, fear, uh, you're going to have a hit. I think that covers all of the questions that I had for you. Is there anything else that you wanted to add at all? Uh, about uh, Mr. Incorporated? No, that was good. Perfect. Um, and just before we end here, do you have any recent projects you'd like to promote or social media channels where people can get in touch with you? Uh, people can follow me on Twitter, Victor underscore Cook one, the number one, not spelled out one. So Victor underscore Cook one. Uh, you can follow me there. I uh, mostly post uh, stuff about the show I'm working on now, which is Tots. And I'll do throwback Thursday stuff of, uh, of the past shows I've worked on, like Mr. Incorporated or Spider-Man. Um, and uh, as far as besides Disney Junior's Tots, which is current, there's also a show on Netflix called Stretch Armstrong and the Flux Fighters that's still on Netflix that I think people would get a kick out of watching if they decided to check it out. Perfect. Well, I think that covers everything. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. It was a good time. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
And that concludes today's episode. Another huge thank you to Victor Cook for taking the time out to chat with me. For more groovy content, be sure to check at Unmasked SD on Twitter, at Unmasked SD Podcast on Instagram, or at UnmaskedSDPodcast.com. You can also find the podcast on Facebook under the Unmasked History of Scooby-Doo Podcast. If you like this episode and want to hear more, also make sure to check those social media channels or the website. Or you can listen to older episodes wherever you like to get your podcast fix. And if you want to follow Victor, you can find him on Twitter at Victor underscore Cook one. Thanks for listening and keep an ear out for the next episode. Scooby-Dooby-Doo!